Hello and welcome to In Unison, the podcast for choral conductors, composers, and choristers, where we interview members of our choral community to talk about new music, new and upcoming performances, and discuss the interpersonal and social dynamics of choral organizations in the San Francisco Bay Area and beyond. Beyond. We are your hosts. I am Zane Fiala, Artistic Director of the International Orange Chorale of San Francisco. And I'm Giacomo Di Gregoli, a tenor in IOCSF, the Golden Gate Men's Chorus, and the San Francisco Symphony Chorus. And this is... In Unison! Today, Robert Geary, founding Artistic Director of both Volti and the Piedmont East Bay Children's Choir, as well as artistic director for the San Francisco Choral Society, stops by the show for a virtual chat about how the diverse membership of his organizations have responded to COVID, with a particular focus on producing visual media that goes beyond the virtual choir. So joining us today, we have maestro Robert Geary. Bob is the founding artistic director of Volti, which under his direction for 35 seasons has become recognized as one of the most important and accomplished new music ensembles in the United States. Bob's also the founding artistic director of the Piedmont East Bay Children's Choir and the Golden Gate International Choral Festival. Bob also serves as artistic director of the San Francisco Choral Society uh, is a champion of contemporary music and has conducted first performances of nearly 200 works. He's received numerous awards and conducted choirs all over the world. Bob, thanks so much for joining us today. Did I miss anything in that uh, that rundown? I've just been around for a long time, so you accumulate a lot of things over the years. No, that's, that's true. That's fine. That's true. <laughs> Thank you. Nice to be here. Bob, we're going to jump right in. I one of the things I, I've been kicking around and would love to ask you is you've, you're the founder of several groups focused on the vanguard of new music that's been around for quite some time. Uh, first off, what was it that sparked the desire to pursue new music for you? Like, what, was it a, what, what is it about new music and newness that, that really turns your crank? Yeah, good question. Um, I think it, had, it goes back to my student days. And uh, I was a theory and comp undergrad um, uh, and I, you know, was very interested in the contemporary composers of the day at that time and sort of the whole t- mid to late 20th century evolution of music. So, you know, I had an ear for, of course, you know, Stravinsky earlier in the century, but, you know, moving through Schoenberg and Berg and Stockhausen and Penderecki and those folks. And and the school I went to was a state university, the University of New Hampshire. Um, not known really for a choral program, although they had a choral program. Uh, we weren't exploring any of that music in choir. I sang in choir. My mother was a choir director. I grew up singing in choirs. Um, <clears throat> uh, so there was a bit of a disconnect between what was interesting, my musical tastes, um, and what we were singing. Um, things like Randall Thompson's Frostiana and um, Samuel Barber's Reincarnations and you know, mm. really, and some Benjamin Britten and things like that. They were, were really solid literature, but they weren't at all exploring the tonal and rhythmic world of uh, contemporary instru- instrumental music. So then when, I, when we started the San Francisco Chamber Singers, which became Volte, um, 
there was a group, it was a group of very talented singers. We had all been singing together in the Byron McGillivray Chorale. Mm. Uh, and we all had kind of decided that wasn't the right place for us simultaneously. And just, just we left. And then one of the singers, Ed Betts, um, said, Bob, you should start a group, you know, because I had a, I by then had a, a master's degree in choral directing uh, and was, you know, look, I was just working a church job at the time. And so th that began the group, but it was a group of people, several of whom were, a couple of whom were founders of Chanticleer and Claire Giovanetti became a very well-known voice teacher. And, you know, the, but it was quite a nice group of folk, talented folk. And we got chamber singers off the ground. And then, you know, we actually, our very first concert was the first half of Bach's Christmas Oratorio. Um, so we didn't start with new music, but at the time we were felt like we were a little bit break on the edge, just singing up to date Benjamin Britten. He had just died in 76. We started in 79 and a couple of our singers had sung in his living room for him and Peter Pears and oh, okay, wow. cool connections there. Um, and, and, and then from there, you know, when you've got the horses, I mean, Zane, you know this as well, you, you, when you've got trained singers, you kind of want to help them and it, it's all like what is our potential how do we reach our potential well you you can spend forever recreating historical music to a fairly well and make it absolutely fabulous but you've got the the horses to do more than that you know you yeah. can you can start to explore and create and then you kind of get into this whole idea of the um creation of new music or uh, you know there are different little buzzy words like making history or something like that but <laughs> the actual place where the composer and the performers and the audience are all experiencing something that is a unique experience you know and and that became became its kind of own mantra and then in Bolte's case we got some recognition you know a bunch of ASCAP awards and some other just opportunities based on the reputation for new music. So then it's like, okay, well, this is working. Let's let's really, really, really focus on this. So it, in short order, it became very rare for Volte to do anything that was more than 20 years old. Uh, and and now it's even less than that, probably, you know, brand new and up to 10 years old probably accommodates most of what Volte does these days. I mean, unless they're gigging with somebody else, you know, collaborating right, right. with the organization. How do you think the landscape of new music has changed and evolved over time, you know, both abroad and also specifically in the Bay Area? Well, I think the landscape for choral music and sort of choral music, choral music did a wonderful expansion from the, I view it kind of as a post-World War II phenomenon. I mean, I think up through World War II, most choral music was happening either in church type situations or in um, symphony chorus type situations. Hmm. Um, although you, you could argue against that. I mean, they right back to, you know, the, the orphanages in Italy and Vivaldi and others wrote for to, um, to the, the, all the Zongvereins that Brahms was writing for. But, but I feel like after World War II, there was just this complete expansion in the number of people singing in the environments they were singing in that were outside of the churches. Mm. And so, you know, Zane, uh, people like you and I uh, figured out that there was a niche for this. And so we, we all have really 
you know, whether we caused anything or we are just the uh, symptoms of, of the flow through time, we're, we're part of this uh, changed landscape. Here's a bit of that transition from sacred to secular choral singing. Stravinsky's 1955 Canticum Sacrum, dubbed by reviewers at the time as the murder in the cathedral. So there's a lot of choirs, as you know, in the Bay Area that, you know, do various levels of new music. Um, uh, I, I sort of, most of the time, uh, my interests are not doing new music that sounds like old music. And, you know, when we commission composers, I pretty much always say, look, I'm not so interested in something that has a classical poetry or a traditional liturgical text or something like that. I rather you know, do something with no text or made up text or found texts. You know, there's this whole genre of text now called found text. So you've got people setting really interesting music out of medical journals or ah. out, of, out of Supreme Court decisions or out of, you know, um, various concoctions of things. And so then it becomes a different question. You're not, you know, trying to express the... The, the various aspects of the deity through traditional liturgical prayers, but you are saying, can I create something that has musical interest and value that has no precedent in, uh, or so no expectation on the part of the listeners? I mean, if we're going to listen to a Magnificat, we have certain expectations of what that text means, how various composers might have said it, and all of that. If we get into, you know, I'm, I'm remembering Ted Hearn's piece called Sound from the Bench, where he used a text from the Citizens United decision. Oh, wow. And, and interwove that and created a piece of music that's just mind-blowing. Um, Volte premiered it, uh, Donald Nally and The Crossing recorded it, and I think they might have got a Grammy for that, or a nomination anyway, maybe a Grammy nomination. He's got, Donald's got several Grammys at this point, I, I believe. They're, they're, they're a house of fire back there in Philadelphia. Let's hear a bit of Ted Hearn's 2017 composition, Sound from the Bench, Choral Argument, which was premiered by Volte. see uh we were you know our program for the spring that got interrupted was going to be an all new music program and one of the singers in the group wrote a new piece for us and it was based on 
quotes from politicians denying climate change. So it's very much that found text that you're oh, Brian discussing. Piece. Yeah, yeah, Brian Lynn had yeah. written um, a piece that was all little excerpts of, of speeches where politicians were essentially denying climate change. And it was very interesting to see the way he took that text and interpreted it. Bob, you also mentioned you talked a little bit about... Um, these historical flashpoints as being the kind of genesis or these moments like World War II, obviously lots of compositions came out of that. Or, I mean, here we are living through a year plus of, you know, this COVID pandemic and everyone's kind of going into the, their own corners and kind of thinking about things and creating new things. Do you think we'll see maybe this sort of new, interesting, new burst of creativity or ideas that'll come out of this period of time? I mean, what are you seeing? Yeah, that's such an interesting topic. Um, I, so when I try to describe, so we're moving into the COVID times, yes. uh, and I I would say I have this interesting window, as I've always had, because I've conducted it on several different levels. You know, I still work with one group of high school treble singers who are part of the Piedmont East Bay Children's Choir. So I still got a little bit of a link into children's choirs. And then I have the San Francisco Choral Society, which is a large amateur organization, and then Volte, which is a small professional organization. So how does each one of them cope? And each one is different. Um, uh, The children's choir were Zooming rehearsals and making virtual recordings. Um, And that will hold us for a while yet. It's, uh, I mean, have you done much of that, Zane or Jacob? We've done a little bit of virtual choir stuff with IRC, just a couple of, of, of projects. You realize when you're done with a rehearsal, first of all, it's more fatiguing than a, you know, a two hour Zoom rehearsal is more fatiguing than a three hour in-person rehearsal. Absolutely. Um, for me, and sounds like for you too. Um, and there, you know, definitely it does satisfy certain things and it creates a visual intimacy that we don't have in our rehearsals because all of a sudden we are absolutely as we are right now, face to face and looking into each other's eyes, even though it's a virtual platform. Hmm. Um, and that changes it. And it also, when you're making virtual recordings, all of a sudden the singers really do have to pay attention more to how they present for the camera. And that's a valuable skill, you know, know being, being able to manage yourself in a visual way. So with the kids, there are some benefits after each rehearsal, it's like, okay, that didn't go badly. Yeah, that was, it was, and I always come away with this feeling like, well, it's better than nothing. Yeah. You know? <laughs> um, and I do feel, especially for the young people for whom uh, their, their, their peer group is so important. Um, I feel for them that, you know, they're reduced to, yeah, you, why don't you guys go in a chat room while I do a sectional with the altos, you know, and they, they get to gab a little bit and hang out. But, they, you know, they don't get to breathe the same air, probably better at this point. <laughs> um, but you know what I mean, metaphorically speaking, breathe yeah. the same air. Um, so that's the Children's Choir. Then the Choral Society, it's interesting. It has basically sustained the same, its same model of operation. We're doing, you know, four programs of the course of the year. Uh, each one has a, uh, you know, their their usually like eight to 10 rehearsals to prepare a quote program that we sing and we're singing along to recordings. We've done it to recordings that the Choral Society has made from their past literature. This is a group that does mostly larger works Uh and often and mostly orchestrated larger works. Um, So we sing along to recordings. Now we're this next um, 
so let me say, let me just finish the format of it. It's uh, so we meet by Zoom, and my associate conductor and accompanist Brian Baker and I sort of often will split the choir in half and do sectionals, uh-huh. and we you know we'll coordinate all this and you know go through eight or nine weeks and then have our performance and we actually ask people to dress up you know and i will conduct to the recording from home and try to do my and that's another thing just to be looking at the camera of myself conducting and trying to make sure my hands aren't doing this (laughs) all distorted so you know keeping back i'm not i don't have my camera set up right now but you know again the the visual presentation and actually it's a good cleanup for technique to stay in the box and try to be concise and efficient and all of that. Yeah. Um, But that's their thing. And we've actually augmented uh, the number of um, classes that we offer. The Choral Society always offers ancillary classes between sets of vocal technique and musicianship, you know, Mm. various teachers uh, drawn from the Bay Area. And it's interesting, our enrollment has been higher than our normal enrollment for a lot of these projects. Right. And we've <laughs> yesterday we had a person uh, sign up who was part of the classes from Australia. We've had them uh, several from Hawaii, from the East Coast. So all of a sudden, geography means much less. Yeah. Um, what that means when we're able to regather. Uh, is interesting. And the society and probably lots of other groups are now recognizing, hey, this is one way, this is a big amateur choir, it's audition group, but it's an older group of people. And people do reach a point where a combination of their own vocal abilities and or transportation issues make it harder for them to get to rehearsals. Well, guess what? They can sing, we'll probably move into a live streaming of rehearsals so that those folks can continue their association and participation without having to be in the, you know, the environment in terms of uh, the health dangers of the environment, but also the, you know, nowadays to get, as you know, before COVID to get to a rehearsal in San Francisco, you had, you know, I had people driving for two hours to get to a rehearsal. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Two hours there and 40 minutes home, you know, yeah. Yeah. So it's just absurd. Um, so I think that coming out of that, there will be some, some in some ways, good things of expanded opportunities for ways to participate um, that may actually include more people. Because, mm-hmm. you know, there's been a whole trend of what do we do with the aging singer anyway? Because so many of people of my generation, baby boomers, are, you know, getting to the end of their abilities to be rapidly mobile and to have good vocal technique. Sure. Really working on it. So that's the piece for the Choral Society. Um, we also, the, both Choral Society and Volte have taken on uh, sort of a BLM thing as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the case of the Choral Society, about 12, maybe 14 combination singers and, and board members divided up a list of several hundred compositions by black composers and sort of vetted them to see what might be appropriate. And I was looking specifically for repertoire that was not gospel or spiritual based, but happened to be by black composers. And so this next program they're doing will be uh, seven or eight pieces by several black women composers and several black male composers. Um, 
as far as I know, know them days. Um, uh, um, so that's an interesting project of smaller pieces that will also have a virtual performance. Although once we're back in action, we will probably bring a lot of the stuff we worked on for virtual into our performances. Um, so there's that piece. And then Volte uh, actually has taken a different tack. Um, and once this thing hit, I was like, okay, well, Volte is, you know, kind of prides itself and I pride it on it on its uh trying to be innovative you know just always always looking for what what is interesting and creative and works um how do we take advantage of this online situation in a creative way yeah and so i asked uh, four composers if they would each write something specifically for online presentation uh-huh. And in some cases, online actual live performance. Uh, so we've we've had two, and we just may call it mini concerts. Um, we've had two of them so far. One one was a, a piece um, like "All My Dreams" by Anne Heggie, who's a Bay Area composer and fine fine musician and singer, and increasingly interesting, I think, uh, as a composer. Um, and has been involved in technology since she was in her undergrad days. Um, so she's written for the uh, laptop orchestra at Stanford. And she once wrote a piece for my high school treble group where she wrote a program for their uh, iPhones. Wow. <laughs> they, be- they became um, instruments. They created pitches. They would do looping. They would do a number of effects by manipulating them in performance. Amazing. Um, wow. Yeah. Yeah, so so Anne did a piece where she had six solo singers who actually sang live during the performance and then pre-recorded other sections of the piece with those with the tutti of 16 singers. And then she uh created some interludes with electronic music and some visuals. Amazing. And so that that became very interesting. And we had a nice online audience for that, and it was I thought very successful. Here's a snippet of Anne Heggie's piece, It Sounds Like All My Dreams. And then um, Danny Clay took a different tack, mm. and Danny um, worked mostly with the full with the full. We're calling the full group sixteen these days. Uh, it's you know it's actually gotten smaller over the years, but Danny um, pre-recorded all kinds of things, uh, and I had I went to all his rehearsals. And this, I'm also uh, not very important now because the conduct <laughs> the composers are. Um, able to manage what they need musically without anybody conducting or with very little conducting. Right. But Danny, <laughs> Danny said, okay, Bob, now um, conduct as if you're angry. And so I do these abstract, you know, facial expressions and hand gestures. And he took a whole panoply of different 
emotional, rhythmic, whatever, qualitative conducting gestures. And then he took when and then he had also separately worked with the singers and said, okay, do this, do that, do this, do that. And he put all that together and he, he created a piece called Singing Puzzles. Here's a bit of Volte performing Danny Clay's Singing Puzzles, which was streamed live in December something like that together i mean it's we were uh, just talking with tim keeler and chandler has been trying to do these things i mean it's sort of this trial by fire where gosh who knows what and what can we find and who's got skills to do different things uh, this is a whole new world for you and you were sort of talking earlier about the visual interest and you've got to kind of add that how the heck do you put something like that highly polished and interesting together yeah you, you ask a great question and i will say that i don't um <laughs> i will say that i have I have learned the rudiments of something called sound trap, which if you need to do something, it might work well for FOS, uh, for your group, Zane, sorry. That's all of Carol's. Um, uh, sound trap is a good one. It's easy editing. Um, okay. Uh, so if you get your recordings from your individual singers, you can, it doesn't, it's not so hard to learn. Uh, yeah. I, I was starting to get my feet wet with GarageBand, but I'm no, by no means proficient with that and then soundtrap came up and i just kind of switched over because i could handle that and it, and it functions a lot like garage band right right um uh it, so in the case of ann's piece and the video uh, and we we had a we had a producer for performance night and we actually had a couple of dress rehearsals because there was the live element the six singers were actually singing live on performance night and it, so it was all sort of orchestrated and produced with a technician um, wow. were they singing live from separate locations yes amazing six separate locations and so the music was built so that the level the the, the latency issue was not going to kill it right you know? um so but and sh you know she designed it well so that one went that way danny did everything Danny did everything, including the graphics, you know, when he had all the uh -huh. little jiggling I, scribbles yeah, and the, IPA yeah, yeah, symbols. Yeah. And yeah, he, uh -huh. he's, he's, he's a, he's a force. He's, he's amazing. Uh, have you ever worked with him? No, no, but we definitely plan to talk to him for this, oh, for this podcast. Yeah. He's completely accessible and so creative. And he, because he works with, he, he's, he's just got such a muse. Uh, he works with elementary school kids. That's oh. a, that's his main living, I think. I mean, he's also getting commissioned a lot now, um, all over the country, I think. Um, but he's just the easiest, most creative person. And none of that piece had any written out standard notation. Right. 
everything I he got that sense. You know, he worked with the key of E flat a lot. And he'd, uh-huh. he'd, say, he'd say, here's an E flat, you know, sing any note in the scale or sing a note in a triad. And then, you know, people would send back their samples and he just cobbled everything together himself. So he produced that whole thing. The next one, which I'm going to a rehearsal for tonight, I hope, is a, is Joel Chapman's piece. Um, Joel sings with Carl, uh, sings with Volte. Uh, do you know him? I don't think so. Not yet. Here's Joel musing what it might sound like if robots sang Renaissance music. Alexa, do you like to sing? Check out Joel's next premiere with Volte on February 13th at VolteSF.org. Yeah, he, he's a remarkable musician. He's one of several that have come to Volte from Stanford. And wow. he actually has one of his degrees is in uh, music technology. And so he's a composer. He's a, he's a basso profundo. He's got the lowest wow. low notes. Yeah, and, and is a oh, did, did he sing with you on uh, the Path of Miracles, the Joby Talbert? At yeah. okay, yeah, I, I know, I know, I now I know exactly what you're talking about. Yes, when you say basso profundo and Volti, I got it. <laughs> <laughs> and he had he had that one solo too in the first movement that was ah uh, yes. Um, but anyway, so he's this is the first time we've asked him to write something. But again, I was kind of trying to pick people who I knew were already working with technology and knowledgeable in that way and um and then in february we'll do something with pamela z she, uh, she's kind of legendary at this point so you you do want to check her out she's local she um her pre to rome was interrupted by covid she had to come okay. part way through it but she's she's kind of garnering those kinds of accolades you know and um i think we probably grabbed her uh while we could uh, and is she also technically, you know, proficient with the technology and whatnot? Yeah, I mean, we it will see in both Joel's and, and Pamela's cases what they need in terms of technical support. We'll we will we will see. I mean, because Anne and Danny were different, and right like that. So we're just trying to be from the point of view of our administrative and funding and all of that. We're trying to stay light on our feet. Sure, of course. Um, Pamela's, she does a lot with creating loops. She's a solo performer most of the time, but she she also performs with other ensembles. But she she has a whole bunch of solo performance stuff where she'll have all her technology laid out and she'll sing something and start looping it and then sing on top of that or create Mm -hmm. another layer. And and, I would summarize her style a little bit that way. So it'll be fun to see what she's doing. Here's a bit of Pamela Z performing Quatre Couches from her suite for voice and electronics.
so Volti has said, okay, this is what we have. This is our environment. How do we, what can we create? So Volti is not really making virtual choir, although, right. some, although you could look at Danny Clay's piece to some extent as virtual choir. Yeah, I guess so. I don't know if I would categorize it that way, though, because virtual choir to me is like, you know, you you record all the music ahead of time and then it's put together in a more traditional choral type, you know, sound. Whereas Volti, I, I feel like I watching Danny Clay's piece, it was like, this is just this is just a Volti thing. Like, yeah, this even, is exactly what Volti is known for. Even and, just taking that Brady Bunch grid and doing really interesting things yeah. with it, with the scribbles and taking it away and put other visual interest. I mean, it's beautiful. It was really beautiful. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Yeah, that's him. I mean, so yeah, seriously, go for him. You know, yeah. Uh, yeah we'll get, talk to him. He's, you're, because it it takes singers out of their box too. If they're highly trained, and have learned to sing with beautiful technique and the ability to analyze difficult intervals and difficult rhythms, and he suddenly says, none of that really matters. Let's just be creative. Mm -hmm. And then that's disorienting. You know, so then then everybody and happily most singers are happy to be disoriented it seems or you know <laughs> uh, you know happy to get outside the box and yeah. play but he reintroduces the idea of play and fun into the creative process and then creates things on that which is a good lesson for all of us you know to yeah. be Megan, we chatted with uh, Megan Solomon a few days ago, and she said the same thing where it's, you know, she said, sometimes you don't have to write the, you know, multi-part polyphony, crazy, big thing. Sometimes if you can just write a piece that feels playful and it's two parts and it's suitable for children and, you know, it's all heart and it, you're still expressing something beautiful, that's just as worthwhile. In fact, maybe more worthwhile to connect with people. I think it's, I think for all of us, we want to have as broad uh, a reach as we can. You know, it's good. It's good once in a while to do something that might be lighthearted or humorous or whatever. But you know, and and I have to say, my most of my life, I've been drawn more to that which is intense and challenging, and you know, mm -hmm. all, all all of that side of things. But I think being the full spectrum is that's who we are as human beings. So that's who we should be as musicians too. I think, right? Yeah, absolutely. I agree completely. Um, well, I know that we our time is just a little bit limited, so we want to make sure to 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 let you go in time to get to your next meeting. But uh, you know, as a kind of a wrap up, what what are you most excited for post pandemic as we round the corner and we get back to what we say is normal? When we get the Fauci all clear, what's the first thing you're doing? Yeah, yeah I know. I, I'm I'm actually a little afraid. Yeah. I think, you know, we've had all these organizations have been, the wheels, the gears have been turning, they were turning for years and years and years in a certain way, and then we just stopped them. And I'm, I'm a little concerned about who's, in the case of the Choral Society, who's actually going to come back to the in situ rehearsals. Uh, and when when will we have the confidence in, in the case of that group to uh, think that we've got the funding capability and the audience draw to go back to Davies Hall, which is a big deal, you know, that costs a lot, and you know, right. but it's also a, just a great performance experience. Um, in Volti's case, I would say I think that they will probably fairly easily move from one medium to the next. But I I, I mean, I'm really looking forward to. Uh, having uh, groups of people who literally are breathing together in the mm. same space, 
you know, I, I just, I do enough yoga and meditation where that awareness uh, that I took for granted for 40, 50 years uh, um, of the opportunity that we have when we do that together, which is where we kind of feel those deeper human connections. Um, I'm looking forward to being able to be back in an environment where that happens like that. And I, as I say, I took it so for granted and I don't know. <laughs> I think Amen. That, yeah, I, I think that that's a universal feeling for a lot of the folks we've been talking to um, for this, for both this podcast and just for me in general, a lot of people, it's like, I didn't realize how much I took for granted before it was all taken away and, and everything changed, you know? So I, I think that sentiment is, is universal for sure. Well, Joni, Mitchell, Joni Mitchell said it well when she said, you don't know what you got till it's gone. Joni Mitchell never lies. <laughs> well, Bob, uh, we really appreciate you joining us today to, to give us a little update on what's going on with your ensembles and with you in general. And uh, we really do hope that we can have you back on to talk about specific new music pieces and uh, composers and performances and things that fit into the wheelhouse of this podcast as we, we cruise along into the future. I'd be happy to do that. All right, Bob. Well, take care, and uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks, you guys. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Hey, thanks for listening to this week's episode of the In Unison podcast. But before we go... Do you sing in an awesome choir that people should know about? Or maybe know a composer or conductor you'd love to hear on the show? How about any recent or upcoming performances that touched your heart, tickled your fancy, or made you go, hmm? Well, then we would love to hear from you. Please shoot us a note at ideas at inunisonpodcast.com with your thoughts. And who knows, maybe Chorus Dolores will ask us to talk about it during announcements. (laughs) In Unison is sustained, nourished, and fostered by you, our loyal and loving listeners. And don't forget to subscribe to In Unison on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at InUnisonPod. And hey, if you like what you heard, tell a friend or a section mate. Thanks again for tuning in. See you soon. Vocal warm-ups led this week by Chorus Dolores. Is that low enough, basses? In Unison is produced and recorded by Mission Orange Studios. Our theme music is Mr. Puffy, written by Avi Bortnik, arranged by Paul Kim, and performed by the Danish vocal jazz ensemble Dynamic on their debut album, This Is Dynamic. Special thanks to Paul Kim for permission. Be sure to check them out at www.dynamicjazz.dk.